episode of Playtime, I speak with a 96-year-old working artist about his latest book, Leo Segedin, The Holocaust Series, Paintings and Drawings, 1967-79, to which I was honored to write the afterword. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Chicago's cultural fabric, critically acclaimed artist and educator Leopold Segedin was born in 1927. At 96, Leo still puts in a daunting six hours of work each day. Segedin has exhibited for over 70 years, including retrospectives at Chicago's Cultural Center, University of Chicago, University of Illinois, Northeastern Illinois University, and major group shows at the Art Institute of Chicago, Milwaukee Institute, of Art and Design, Illinois State Museum, and Des Moines Art Center, among others. His latest show, Leopold Segedin, The Holocaust Series, Paintings and Drawings, 1967-79, to opens Friday, April 14, 2023, at 4 p.m. at the Noise Cultural Center, 927 Noise Street, that's N-O-Y-E-S, Street Suite, 100 in Evanston. The telephone number there is 847-328-2100. The show runs through Tuesday, May 30th. His website is leosegedin.com. I sat down for lunch with Leo and his son Paul at Leo's home in Evanston, Illinois. So we were talking about art and image making. And so you were, you were about to make a really brilliant point about your memoir. So please, please continue. Well, um, once you start distinguishing that, you have the cave paintings and you have um, the main characteristic of what they call fine art is that it has no function. You appreciate it for itself. That's one of the definitions. Uh, it has, it's, it's something you see in a museum where it has no function mm-hmm. or on a wall somewhere. Um, and, and the, the distinction means that a lot of what people say about art um, doesn't, doesn't hold up because all these people are making art from all these different cultures, uh, the making of image making. I mean, kids make images before they speak. You yeah. know, that says yeah. something about the development of a, a man's capacity to communicate. And I... I, I but images have functions, so that's a major distinction. No, they. So is a child, is a child exploring the 
the rudiments uh, of of that function. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very much okay. so. Um, and and so, what are they? What are they exploring to? Well, I think the kinds of experience that images, the kind of meanings they have, yeah. are nonverbal meanings. What cannot be converted into words, okay. you know, literature, where everything is laid out in, in a, a sequence of symbols, yeah. and the meaning has to do with the sequence. Uh, but there are all kinds of experiences we have which you can't put into those, mm -hmm. and that was the function of images. So images and art really have contradictory functions, and if you look at it that way, at least in this context. And um, you, you go all kinds of ways with that one. It's an interesting direction. You just celebrated your 96th birthday yesterday. Right. Uh, which is an astounding milestone. Have you decided what you're going to do for your 100th yet? What? Have you decided what you're going to do for your 100th? For my what? Your 100th birthday? 100 years? I haven't planned that far ahead yet. <laughs> but I'll start working on it soon. Good man. Good I'll, man. I'll start working on it on maybe my 98th birthday, 99th. All right, so all right. We'll have to have a retrospective somewhere. Yeah, right. I have, I, you know, I, I, don't, I can't see clearly yet. I have to, when I get old, I'll have a perspective. <laughs> well, it used to be that old people were the people who were consulted if you wanted to know anything. That's it. Now they ignore them. Now and artists and writers, them. man. They uh, patronize them. They uh, infantile them. Yep. And uh, so I think of myself as an image maker, and I don't care what function they mm -hmm. put them to. Mm -hmm. But when you put something in a museum, you're taking it out of its original context. And uh, I mean, you, you can say whatever you want about them. I mean, the meaning of the things is nonverbal, so you can say anything you want. And that's what they've been doing all these years. I mean, where would the critics be without language? Indeed. But the words they use is not the work that they're describing. So, what, in Leo Segedin's opinion, or experience, 96 years experience, it's a hell, it's a hell of a lot of, lot of experience, and I know you've thought about this, what is the purpose of image making and art. Well, pretty much what I um, just said. Images express, I shouldn't use that word, mm -hmm. they represent uh, experiences that you can't put into words. In order for me to be an artist, I have to participate in what they call the art world. Yeah. The art world was invented end of the 18th 19th century, beginning 19th century, when the aristoc aristocratic uh -huh. function of art uh, was destroyed by the, by the French Revolution. And these guys had to determine what, how to make a buck, how to support themselves. So they developed an art market. It begins in Paris. and uh, But how do you make art that, the, uh, the painting, how do you make a painting valuable? I mean, what is, it's nothing but paint on canvas. Yeah. What makes it so valuable? Yeah. So you're dealing with a totally different system 
which did not exist before, at least not in the form that it has since the uh, French Revolution. And um, well, Cosimo de, uh, de Medici in yeah. in 15th century Florence would ha- would have would have answered that question this way. What makes it valuable, first of all, is the skill. <coughs> is, it what? is the skill employed? But secondly, the exaltation of religion. But fast forward to to the period that you're speaking of, and that's all off the table. Well, let me ask you this. Yes, sir. You say that, um, that they recognize skill, uh-huh. but the Byzantine painters were very skillful. They just made a different kind of image. This is true. This is true. So it has to do with a new approach to nature. I mean, they didn't give a damn about nature before that. All they cared about was the religion. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there was any books about nature before the uh, before the mm-hmm. uh, uh, Renaissance. I mean, it, people didn't look outside. There was no Alberti or uh, who, 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 they Uccello or, or uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, think about the artificial. Well, you've been writing about it, so you, you know, think of the, the requirements, the limitations on perception mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. one point, two per, uh, point perspective creates. Mm-hmm. Can't move your head up and down. Mm-hmm. You know, when I uh, in, when I was working on my thesis painting, getting out of college, uh, one of the things I recognized was that traditional one-point perspective is not realistic. Right. It is not realistic. It's an arbitrary art- artifice. Mm-hmm. Artifice. It's a, it, it limits the range of perception. It focuses on one view. You can't move mm-hmm. your head, mm-hmm. can't move your eye. Mm-hmm. But when we uh, say you're on an L platform, you don't just stare right ahead. If you look straight ahead, all the lines are horizontal. Mm-hmm. Look to the left, they converge. Look to the right, they converge. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, one point perspective is artificial. It's not. It's artificial. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. it's unrealistic. But people say, "Oh, that's realistic. That's the way things look like." But that's not the way they look like. That's they. It may be. It's not the way you see them. Your perception is far right. more complex right. than that. Right. I mean, you look up and down, left and right. You move your body. And, uh, and so, in order to to limit the range of perspective, you create one or two point perspective. Mm-hmm. It's a limitation, not an expansion. That brings to mind this. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, cultural and our, our artistic steps uh, in in human perception. Negative space, which was not employed before the mid. Uh, the early to mid 16, uh, 1500s, 16th century, was was one of those astounding leaps of intellect. That had always been, you you can argue that even in Byzantine art, uh, and and especially in cave art, uh, which is all about negative space, it's it's a utilization of of a cave wall to to demonstrate perhaps motion in the flickering light of a fire, uh, but especially to uh, to render two-dimensional animals 
uh, with a degree of, of uh, clarity. But filling the spaces, filling every space, which, which, was, which was an element of early Islamic art uh, and uh, Egyptian Babylonian art, um, but especially Byzantine art, uh, that they were, they were in fact using negative space through, through a positive rendering of imagery. Does that make sense? What do you mean by negative space? Well, the space around your subject, okay. defining the subject. Okay. But so, so the, the, the halo and figure in Byzantine art is surrounded by this sea of, of imagery that is either pertinent to the subject or space filling. Um, I just had a conversation with uh, the singer Leo Sayer and he, he mentioned problem solving as, as, a, uh, uh, as an element of, of every artist's um, bag of tools, right? That, that you're, you're, you're always trying to, to solve that, that space problem, whether it's verbally, lyrically, literature, uh, how, however. And that's exactly what they were doing. They felt that they needed to incorporate and fill every space of, 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 a, of a panel or, or a piece of art but they were in essence creating a very busy negative space around the subject. Why would you call it negative space? It's not space. It's nothing. Yes. But it's, uh, the Renaissance was concerned with negative space because you have three-dimensional figures mm -hmm. in space. Mm -hmm. But the Byzantine didn't. There was no... Uh, Negative space. There was none space, but not negative space. I mean. Okay. Was, okay. Okay. You know what I mean? It's just. Yeah, a, I see that. The image was isolated from the wall, mm -hmm. but it, it it wasn't existing in space. Yeah. It just was a separate area. It looked, I mean, the Renaissance people thought that these were unskillful. They were just as skillful as anybody else. Did except they weren't trying to represent, well, negative space. Yeah. If you're building a narrative through imagery, you can't help but create negative space, right? Around around your subject. Oh, I don't know. No? No, I, I think you can. Okay. I, I think all you have to do is have what... You have to reduce the narrative to the characters who are involved in the narrative, mm -hmm. the individual human beings, and mm -hmm. you can represent those. Mm -hmm. But the rest is wall, mm -hmm. it's background. I mean, it's not even background. And you don't consider that that background as as a negative space. So, so when I when I when I'm talking about about negative space, I'm describing. I'm describing the the, the space around, um, the around the figure. Oh yeah, I understand that. Okay. Okay. But I think there's a difference between 
what, what you call negative space and, uh-huh. and say Byzantine painting uh-huh. is the Renaissance. Indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely there is. Because in, in um, it's irrelevant. Let's put it uh, that way. Okay, okay. It's irrelative to the narrative. Uh-huh. And in, uh, in Renaissance art, it's, it's a part of it because the narrative occurs in a space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in Byzantine, maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never thought of that. You said that you're working on your memoir. Yeah. You're about 15,000 words in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any revelations? Because, so I, I've written a number of books. And even in the novels, there's there's a revelation or a number of revelations that I have within within the book or even, even outside of the book. I'll give you I'll give you one. I was way ahead of the curve on on this theory, and this is for the history of art, was that cave paintings, uh, I believe, were the first motion pictures. And that there's there's also a legacy of that. There's uh, there's there's a number of bees that they found that have have a horse standing and a horse leaping on the other side. And there's a hole through it. So that when you when you string when you when you you put string through that and twist and turn it, the horse looks like it's it's running. That was that was one of the, one of the revelations that um, that I had. The other was was about Jan van Eyck, and some of some of the the things that. Um, that I coaxed from his his background that aren't aren't known yet. In fairness, there's there's a bit of speculation on my part, and I, I clearly state that. But I feel that that those those speculations are closer to the truth than and begin to frame Jan van Eyck more more fully like, like, uh, like what I'll give you an example John the pitiless huh? uh, he he worked or his first his first real mention in history history books is in the court of John the pitiless this sort of bratty teenage uh, oligarch who at 17 was was given authority over much of of Belgium okay or Flanders and that turned out really badly uh, there were there were numerous revolts because he was so heavy-handed uh, but he was he was so well connected to Philip the good and and a number of other a number of uh, other noble people and when the rebels chased him out of out of Liège to to Maastricht. He called upon his very powerful and very wealthy family who raised an army on his behalf and showed up and slaughtered to a man every one of the rebels. John returned to Liège and not satisfied that all the rebels had been killed by his family, um, decided that he was going to take vengeance upon their family 
and other nobles who might have, who, who may have been suspected of, of being in sympathy with the rebels. He beheaded the, the nobles and drowned their families in the, uh, in the Mers River. And then 10 years later, nine years later, Jan van Eyck goes to work for John the Pitiless. It probably wasn't a job offer you could, you could rightly uh, refuse in those, in those days, especially, especially with someone with, with his. And then, you know, with, within six years or, or, or three or four years, uh, John was, uh, was poisoned by someone within his, when his, within his own court. And then, uh, and then Jan, Jan Benek goes off to, you know, his fame and fortune, right? Framing him and putting him in the court of John the Pitiless speaks volumes about the pragmatic nature of Jan van Eyck, something which other art historians haven't spoken about or haven't, haven't thought about. But there had to have been a sublime pragmatism in the man in order to survive in what was absolutely a tumultuous and probably somewhat dangerous court environment uh, and then to go off with to go off with uh, with his cousin Philip the Good uh, and then ultimately you know become a sort of this artistic diplomat for for Philip and we, we all know the story of of his painting of Isabella of Portugal and and how that portrait the strength of that portrait helped convince Philip that he would marry her were independent of politics, like uh, yeah. men. But you couldn't be entirely. You had to be, you had to be pious, and and unquestioning. Think of Goya. Yeah. Perfect example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you had to be really careful if you're going to be an artist, and you got to work for yeah. Yeah. royalty, and then for the yeah. rebels. And yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So, and then, and then for, for Goya, I truly believe that, that he saw through the violence of Renaissance era or, or Middle Ages uh, Christianity, and he rendered that violence in his brushstrokes. Do you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you brought up Goya right away. And then you got to think also about, you know, this idea that artists express themselves has a very limited history. Yeah. I mean, they were image makers before they were, and it had nothing to do with their feelings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know I work, and I may not feel like working, but it's a matter of discipline. Mm-hmm. And the idea that artists is letting it all out, and, you know, that's a goes back to the 19th century, the Romantics. Yeah. It doesn't go back beyond that. Well, Giotto, putting, putting all of those, uh, all that emotion and pain and anguish, uh, which had never been portrayed before in, in all of that liturgical painting or mm-hmm. liturgical artwork. 
and and he set a new astounding pattern. But they weren't his feelings. Yeah. We have no idea what he felt. Yeah. Yeah. We, we know what the uh, culture was emphasizing. Yeah. But um, it has nothing to do with the artist feeling. That's a great point. He is uh, like a furniture maker. Who cares about the feeling that the person who made the chair? Mm -hmm. You know, it's irrelevant if they, they care how well made it was yeah. and if it served its function. Yeah. But they didn't care what the artist was thinking about. Yeah. And that's a relatively, well, I say it's a 19th century concept. And, and you see the way the idea of expression starts with the romantics and then it moves into the expressionists and, uh, and the surrealists and all the other people. Mm -hmm. And so the theoreticians develop a, a theory of, uh, of an inner life. I wanted to... Um, I didn't want to lose, lose the momentum of what you were, you were talking about, but I also didn't want to lose uh, any of the momentum of um, of the book, the Holocaust series, paintings and drawings, 1967 to 1979, of of your work. First of all, why this book and why now? Because I'm having a show. Okay. Okay. I can I can answer that. Uh, Please. When when uh, Angela over at the Noise Cultural Arts Center uh -huh. uh, wanted to know. If we wanted to do a show of my dad's work. I asked her what she wanted to show, gave her some choices, and she said she, they wanted something controversial. And so this seemed to be the most provocative and controversial period of his career, so it seemed like a good one to go with. Plus, we've been wanting to show the big pieces somewhere for a long time, so it was a good opportunity to have the walls for it. Yeah, provocative yeah. is better. Yeah. But, uh, it was the best I could come up with. <laughs> I could, I, we could have shown some, some new Leo self-portraits, but I wasn't really that interested. <laughs> 1967 to 79, you did right. these. Tell me again the story of your, was it your grandfather or your great-grandfather in Odessa? It's been my father's mother. Okay, okay. Well... They were there during World War One. Uh huh. The Germans occupied the city, uh -huh. and uh, they didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. It was not uh, fundamentally anti-Semitic. Yeah. Do you know? Do you remember their names? Segedin. Okay. And the, the name Segedin, from what I remember, my father telling me was, you know, my grandfather ran a tin, a tin shop. Mm -hmm. My father was trained as a jeweler. Okay. And. Uh, uh, he, he told me that above the door, yeah, uh, there was a sign that said Segedin, 1848. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Jews were not allowed in Odessa, theoretically. It was, what you say, it's outside the pale. Yeah. Because Jews were uh, limited to a certain areas, and this was outside the area. It was a very urban, international city. Right. So she stayed, and she survived the war. Uh-huh. And... Um, like I say, my father uh, was trying to bring her over here, and uh, they wouldn't let her out. He actually had bought tickets for her on the Normandy, and this was back in 1937. Wow. And they wouldn't let her out. And he used to send them packages. You know, uh, there's a, there was a place on Roosevelt Road mm -hmm. that specialty was sending packages 
to uh, various uh, European cities, and they canceled that. And so um, she stayed. And once she realized things, well, I survived the, uh, I survived the World War One. I survived never. Yeah. But the, it's, it's interesting. Is it's the Ukrainians that killed her, not yeah. the Germans. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, he communicated with the, with the remains of the family afterwards. He had a brother, Joseph, who, uh, and a, a lot of the other families, they left mm-hmm. Odessa, mm-hmm. and then they came back after the war. I, I can't imagine what he was going through during the war when he, he knew the Germans had occupied uh, the city. You know, for years I wanted to paint the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and I couldn't conceive of a, a way that didn't trivialize it. Okay. I was going to ask you, um, so so you had that base where you and your family understood what what had happened with the Holocaust, and then all the revelations that came out after 1944, 45, and 46, mm-hmm. and, and onward, but you were all you were already working as as a painter, as an artist. Oh yeah. Um, in 1940, 45, or in the late 40s and, and early 50s, my follow-up question was going to be, why, why wait till 1967? Because I had no vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, a lot of artists uh, try to. Uh, Represented, but they're all corny, you know, with arms like this or reactionary behind barbed wire, you know. Yeah, yeah. That could be applied to any uh, massacre, any genocide. Yep. Yep. But I think the murder of Jews in Europe is a a special category because they picked the Jews out. Mm -hmm. The Germans killed Mm -hmm. everybody else, including, but. The Jews were special. They, they, special they meant policy. to specifically exterminate the Jews. Right. They got together and said, we're going to eliminate the Jews. Yeah. They didn't yeah. do that with anybody yeah. else. And uh, But there was no vocabulary. What could you... What images are I going to use? Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to do a painting like everybody else. Uh, and it wasn't until the Vietnam War and I started to read these reports about body counts mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, part, the parts of man, where body parts were counted as individuals, when you count the casualties. Yeah. And there's an arm there and an arm there, there's two different people. And I said, really, well, there's, there's a, something there. And so I needed a vocabulary. I'm not expressing myself. Right, I, right. Like I say, I could feel lousy, uh, but it's, how do you do it? But you need the language. Mm-hmm, you need mm-hmm. a visual language. And it wasn't until the the war in the late sixties mm-hmm, that I got the vocabulary. So, so in a in a very real way, this becomes a much larger commentary, not just on on the Holocaust uh, and and the experience of, of right. the Jews in the Holocaust, right. but the, about and the text in the book as I wrote when I first made. Uh, uh, put them on the uh, in an essay I wrote way back, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I described it what what was behind each of those images. Mm-hmm. It, it's a really breathtaking book, and and I, I've I've had the I've had the honor and privilege of seeing a lot of these in in real life and close up and personal. But there there's just there's just so much so much here. 
You were on a bit of a tear. I was on a roll. Yeah, you were. <laughs> I was doing like two, three of those a day, just every day. I just wow. kept turning them out. Wow. Because I knew what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. You know, it was funny, though. I'm sorry, I was just talking about it before. Yeah. The first ones are crepe eyes, and maybe watercolor or a little bit Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were all very spontaneous. and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. With a big free arm, a lot of, a lot of lines and so forth. Mm-hmm. But when it came to transferring that idea, to four foot by six foot canvases, I did not do it. I tried, and the technique just was inadequate. Wow! And I have a, I had a friend, another artist, uh-huh. Mary Schulman, her name was, who was in my studio, she, and I showed her what I was doing. Uh-huh. And I was I had a block. This was 1967. Yeah. And so she said, she took up a brush, gave me a brush dipped it in the paint I had on the palette, and we went up there, and the two of us smeared paint on, on, the, on the canvas. And as soon as she did that, as soon as she did that, I knew where I was wanting to go. And that's when these big ones came out. Wow. So I thank her. But that was the last person who ever had influence on my painting. It's pretty breathtaking, the scope of this book, from all the media uh, that you all the, the the different mediums that you that you employ here, um, a, as well as an acute visual acumen, so it it looks like some of these are rendered emotionally. In other words, in other words, they were they were expressionistic in their uh, in their treatment. Um, they were they were kind of like an explosion of emotion, right? No, really. It was, I, I didn't explode. A lot of, a lot of read that way. But I didn't. Okay. I just knew oh, what, I see. Okay. I just knew how to do that. Yeah, yeah. So, some of these emotions are are incredibly raw. Good. But they're in the painting. Yes, it yes. It doesn't tell you how I was feeling, though. But then some of them, like and uh, this uh, Politifiction 4 is... Uh, I'm, I'm going to the full title here... Um, polit- politifiction for balloons under hanging people is it's it's abstract. Um, is this this is oil? I'm I'm guessing um, this piece. No, it's probably acrylic. Acrylic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it's it's rendered very very precisely right. without without the the edge or emotion. Of some of the right. some of the other I had a, a, yeah. an input, a okay. merry-go-round. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I figured that's what was going on in Washington. Uh-huh. Running around. This what's going on there now. That's what's going Salt on there now. Talk and nothing is happening. Yeah, yeah. Round and round, over and over and over again, and the same things keep repeating themselves. Uh-huh. That's amazing to me. Part of it is generational. Each generation has to go through shit for itself. But uh, this was all. Th- at the same time, and and some of these are are so abstract that they almost they almost feel floral or organic um, until until you know what they're about, and I think that duality creates this um, this this eternal. This eternal conversation within within the the work, and I'm, I'm 
So I'm looking at body parts, uh, body parts four, uh, and um, which is mixed media on paper, and body parts five, also mixed media on on paper. The, these are these are just beautiful and astounding. But then then when you then when you think about what they what they are meant to represent, there's there's a level of ghastliness and horror that comes through, but you can you can step back and and appreciate the the artistic beauty behind these as well. And and that 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 shows a true mastery. I appreciate it very much. It's interesting, you know, when I work spontaneously, yeah. They say, well, I'm expressing myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a technique working like that. Of course. And of there's course. certainly emotion involved yeah. in it, but it's it's in the painting, not uh-huh. in me. And you got to distinguish between the artist's feelings and whatever's communicated mm-hmm. by the painting. Mm-hmm. And very often, the critics confuse the two. You know, they say, well, he's feeling that. You don't know how the artist is feeling. Any more than you know that a, a comedian is happy when he's telling jokes. You don't mm-hmm. know what he feels like. You know, it's not a, uh, it's, it's not a personal. Robin thing. Williams it's, committed suicide. It's a skill. <laughs> yeah. You learn in yeah. school and yeah. you develop your whole life. Yeah. And, and uh, you lose it. I'm losing it now that I'm getting old. And so I have to, I'm developing new techniques which do, do not require the techniques that I used a few years ago. Yeah, we, you said you're you're having some trouble with uh, with eyesight and yeah, and differentiating very, very colors. So. Um, but but you know then then I made the comment that Monet did some of his best work with That's true. Uh, and he had cataracts. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, several weeks ago. Um, Paul took me to the eye doctor, uh-huh. and he gave me a new set of glasses. Mm-hmm. And what it does is enlarge. It's a magnifying glass built in. Yep. Now, I have a magnifying glass attached to the light on mm-hmm. the drawing mm-hmm. table, but this is right in my the lens of my glasses. And it helps. And he's going about as far as he can. I mean, and I'm working with Saigon. It's it's so important because of the literature of the last hundred years yeah. talks about expression and emotion, and they turn the whole thing into a subjective process. Yeah. It's not. I mean, you think of the skill of someone like Salvatore Dali, and he's representing dreams for kind of love. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you got to separate what the artist does and what the painting does. Mm-hmm. They are not the same, and the tendency for the last several years is to confuse the feelings you feel when you look at the painting with the feelings of the artist. You don't know how the artist feels. Yeah. Picasso changed his mind telling people what he did, why he did it. There's preponderance of of purples and blues. That's because of the painting. There was a a napper violet color I used for a while. Yeah. And uh, my paintings took on that, that look. Yeah. But then I decided I hated it, so I couldn't really? have it. Really? And I don't know if you can see this or not, but you, you shadow, there's virtually, there's virtually no 
no renderings in black. There's a there's a, there's a few, but most of the most of the shading, or most of the shadow or dark areas, are are rendered as purple, or in or in deep blue. No special rain. Yeah. yeah. Do no, you no symbolic significance? Okay, I mean, but as an artist or stylistically, do you have? Do you have a feeling about the use of of black in a painting, or or no? Okay, okay, okay. It's just a stylistic choice, it's or an a, individual choice, maybe. Well, you know, several years ago, yeah, um, they developed a a, a transparent paint. Uh huh. There was a transparent red, transparent green, and I started using. So that changes the appearance of it. Okay. Because now I, I don't have to add turpentine or oil to uh, get a transparency. Right, right. So the, the color changes. Mm-hmm. That's because I set up by different paints. Let me ask you about, and it's the original is on the wall behind you, uh, and I've always been a huge fan of this uh, of this piece. Uh, Bodyscape 4, which you painted in 1976. Wait, with this one here? Yeah. No, that's body... Parts. Part, okay. It might be listed as eight, but I think we actually have the wrong number on it. Uh, it was one of the ones. Okay. Okay. So, so body parts. The piece that's that's behind you, which is, is that acrylic or is that oil? Is that acrylic? Acrylic, acrylic and canvas. Pretty much like everything after like the 1950s was acrylic, right, or what right. he calls okay. mixed media. For a while, I was doing oil glazes over acrylic, and I got beautiful uh-huh. color. Yeah. But then yeah. it got, it gets too hard. So yeah. I, I limited myself to. Uh, okay, so why, why acrylic? What 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 is what's the what's the, uh, the passion for acrylic? Acrylic dries way way faster than oil. Okay. Oil. Okay. Oil never dries. <laughs> oil <laughs> oil oxidizes. It uh-huh. doesn't dry, and paintings a hundred two hundred years later are still changing color. So a lot, a lot of the interpretations, say of Edward Hopper, uh-huh. and he talks about the darks, but that's because the paint fainted. He turned it into a style. And this painting here, by the way, is kind of an interesting history. When I first did it, I didn't like it. Really? And, and for years, it was hidden up in the attic. Wow. And my brother-in-law, for some reason, went up there and he found it. Mm-hmm. He was sitting around the table, he brought it down. Yeah. And I decided I liked it. I, I have to say, uh, again, it's one of my favorites. But I think if I if I had to pick one painting to to remember Leo Segedin by in in an art museum, it would be that one. I, the more I look at it, the more I like it. Yeah, and uh, there's some really good stuff in there, which I didn't even know was there, which I. I knew what I, when I did it, but looking back at it, I didn't know it was there. Mm-hmm. You were searching for for the proper vocabulary. Vocabulary, thank you. You were searching for the the proper vocabulary that you found. Did you find it in in 1967, or did you find it before then? And no, it took it was after the war began. Yeah, after the Vietnam War began. Okay, okay. And I started read these. Uh, yeah, it was all the way through the 70s. Uh-huh. And it was about body bags. Yeah. And 
body parts. Uh-huh. And I had a vocabulary. It's a total dehumanization of human beings. Was it a growing sense that you that you had acquired that that vocabulary? Yes. Or was it so? It wasn't like an epiphany of, oh my God, that's exactly no, what I've been searching for. No, I knew word lay, though. I, know, yeah. I found yeah. the term. No, it's the uh, the total dehumanization. Yeah. Yeah. To own to a part of a body as a human being. Mm-hmm. I'm a good lord. You know, that's I mean. It's a the worst horror. Is, is, uh, it indicates more dehumanization than uh, than a, a picture of a woman with a child with her arm in the air, or yeah. a woman behind barbed wire. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or even people in, in wearing striped uniforms. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that happened in every uh, genocide. Yep. But this was a special genocide. Yeah. And so I try to get that that uh, impersonality, I guess you call it. The, uh, the, human it being, the human being was not human anymore. I witnessed two, two genocides, the Rwandan and the Bosnian genocide. But always, always the the bellwether or or at least the standard uh, by which we've 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 now learned our own vocabulary in uh, in describing genocides begins with the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's always important for everyone to remember, um, and that there's no competition between between Holocausts, but. Um, that's the meaning of the image on the cover there. Yeah. I think that painting says it all. Yeah. Um, talk about talk about this painting, uh, if you don't mind. The the thought behind it and what you were what you're trying to. Well, just what I was saying. If you notice, <laughs> it starts out with human beings, and slowly do dehumanizes them mm-hmm. by a process. I mean, that's the underlying... Uh, An industrial process. Huh? An industrial process. Yeah. Overseen by by men in suits. Right. Yeah. And you, you see the figures in, in the suits mm-hmm. on the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're politicians. I mean, that was... Well, they could be industrialists. Huh? They could be industrialists as well. It's a the total impersonality of a mass murder. Yeah, yeah. I um, when when I was when I was in Bosnia, or when I was when I was traveling around the former Yugoslavia, uh, Serbia, and Kosovo, and Croatia, and, and Bosnia, like uh, it was under a uh, an arms embargo. Under what? It was under an arms embargo. So, but but what that did really is that set up that set up hugely profit market profitable markets. Uh, Throughout the the surrounding region, so you could go if you if if you were going to war in Bosnia, you could take a train to Budapest in Hungary, and there were storefronts, advertised storefronts that sold military gear, wep, uh, uh, bulletproof and flak vests, um, military uniforms uh, of of all the, all the different sides. Uh, AK-47s, ammunition, all, all these things. You could you could walk in off the street 
in downtown Budapest and, and go to and, and buy what you needed. Yes. Get back on the train and... Army or militia. That's it. That's it. Um, but what the embargo ended up doing was inflating the price for arms that were being smuggled uh, sometimes with with UN and and US and NATO and Iranian and Russian um, approval uh, was it inflated that the price of that tenfold and the embargo made made war profiteering even more profitable so and and that's why that's why this painting uh, in particular really resonates uh, very very strongly with me because I, I can I can feel the money changing hands uh, to the detriment of of all these human beings. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. But I think it has a general application. Yeah, and yeah. that's what happens all the time. Anything for a book. There are and Paul, you can uh, weigh in on this as well. Um, but there are almost no art books on on the Holocaust, um, at least that, that I know of. And I, I have a, I have a pretty good handle on on the literature. Um, That's right. I never thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, uh, and and particularly one uh, as colorful and I think that's important I think that because because the lack of color sort of desensitizes the art viewer to to the reality of, of the Holocaust well, you know, and genocide if, if, if it makes sense I want these paintings to be beautiful yes yeah they're in there in lies their their eternal um, message or their, their eternal residence. Right. I remember once coming, I was some place where they were exhibited, I was walking on a freight elevator coming down to the main floor, yeah. and then somebody else was on, and looked at the paintings, oh, that's a still life? Yeah. I said, sure, <laughs> very still. <laughs> some of these, as I said, have that aspect of, for the casual observer, Kind of sneaking into the psyche. I, I'm I'm looking at this, so let me let me go to. Let me just um, I forget what year it was. Uh huh. But my sister and brother-in-law, and I and Jan, went drove all the way through Italy and then crossed over at Trieste and went all the way down the coast uh -huh. to Rovnik, and. Uh, I've made that. I've made that uh, that trip still, a couple of times myself. It was still under communist time, yeah. And uh, we were, you know, really were outsiders, and uh, they were very. Everybody was very cold. All they wanted was our dollars, <laughs> and there was nobody else there. We were at this hotel. The food we had eight, nine, nine waiters because there was no other business. Wow. When did you become first aware of? What was going on in Europe under the Nazis? Well, I heard rumors. Okay. But I have a book 
that was printed in 1943. Yeah. About what was happening in the shtetls in Poland to the Jews. Yeah. So when people come, oh, we didn't know, I knew. They knew. And if I knew, they must have known. Yeah. There were were discussions in 1943 about bombing the rail lines into Auschwitz. Right. And in in uh, my memoir, I talk about that. Yeah. I said I knew. I grew up. We'll talk about it. Let's talk about anti-Semitism for a minute. Please. Yeah. All right. I grew up from the time I was um, eight years old mm-hmm. to the time I went into the army mm-hmm. on Polk and Springfield, right across the street from Presentation Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a convent there in a Catholic school, yeah. and I occasionally played baseball in the middle of Polk Street with these kids. And we played, they knew I was Jewish. Mm-hmm. They accused me of killing Christ. But we kept on playing, I and mean, it didn't interfere with the game, you know. <laughs> so it was something that they picked up that, that they knew they heard somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we lived in the corner, which is a, a three-story apartment building. It's almost all Jewish, okay? The rest of the block was almost all Gentile. My name is Segedin, which is not a Jewish name. So when I was among some Gentiles, I heard the anti-Semitic remarks. Yeah. So let's say I, there's a lot of other stuff like that. So I grew up in an environment as a Jew surrounded mm-hmm. by Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And I was aware of anti-Semitism. Not that I had to face it every day, but I remember while walking down Polk Street once, I'm tapped on my shoulder by a, a big Irish kid saying, are you a Jew? Okay? And I got scared like, What's going to happen? Nothing happened. He didn't do anything. But the fear, a surge of fear, yeah. stayed with me. Okay? And and so I knew about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. I, I, in a sense, it was part of my environment. I knew what was going on in the State Department was anti-Semitic. Roosevelt administration, Roosevelt himself at first, yeah. before Eleanor got on his back, was an anti-Semite. She was anti-Semitic too early on. Huh? She was anti-Semitic too early on. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, it was part of the environment. Yeah. It was there. It didn't necessarily affect me as an individual. Yeah, it didn't didn't bubble out of the ether with the Nazis. No, but it it was there. I remember when uh, these uh, German refugees on the St. Louis, which was, I think, the harbor in Baltimore or somewhere, Uh and they wanted to land... And the government turned them back. back, they went yeah. back to Germany and ended up in the concentration yeah. camp. And I was surrounded by that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, so that's part of my environment. So that's a background in a sense. It's, 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 it's not literally part of it, but it's part of the atmosphere in which they Sure. Are. I was aware of it, even though it didn't affect me directly. Mm-hmm. And when I went to high school, it was all Gentile. There were like five Jews in the whole school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had that feeling of being an outsider, of not not belonging, sort of. You know, most of the people I was associated with were Jewish. So, you know, I had my own environment, my own Jewish. Yeah. But still, there was outside there, there was that. It was threatening all the time. Yeah. And it was an environment, you know what I mean? It was a part of it. And I lived with it. And I think that has to do with, with some of that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
I agree. I agree. That must have stirred a lot of raw emotions. And then when when it was confirmed, when all those rumors uh, and uh, and things that that the Jewish community probably already knew were confirmed. That's another thing. Yeah. The Jewish community, the Jewish organizations, uh-huh. were instructed don't make waves because they yeah. they wanted to, they would make it worse because they were functioning in an anti-Semitic environment. Indeed, they were told to keep their mouth shut, and I always resented that. So Jews had been for centuries. I I just wrote about in in a history of life for the artist, um, the. Uh, the assaults on Jews who were blamed for the Black Death, for spreading the Black Death, and because because they were they were historically a more insular society, and they they had been separated from uh, from a lot of uh, administration. Uh, they were they were banned. From from taking part in in a number of of industries, mm-hmm. um, that 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 kind of created this virtual uh, communal wall around mm-hmm. around Jews, quite naturally. Um, and so, for that reason, when the Black Death swept through Europe and wiped out all these people that were living on top of each other and interconnected except for the Jews who were separate, they were, they were accused of somehow being responsible for, um, right. for the Black right. Death. And they were, uh, they were butchered. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that had always been an aspect of, of Jewish communal life. Do you agree? Yeah, my mother-in-law, um, she was in Russia uh-huh. uh, during one of the pogroms. Yeah, yeah. And uh, her father was a very orthodox Jew. And uh, he was out walking, and all of a sudden the Cossacks come coming down there with their sabers and all that, and he runs, and the family lived in his house. Mm-hmm. They, they, they moved the door. The next door neighbors were Gentile, but they put him in the center, in the mm-hmm. center. And the sub, the sub, the basement. Basement, yeah. And they had to be quiet because the Cossacks were upstairs. Yeah. And uh, they were told, my, uh, my aunt Sylvia, my mother's sister, mm-hmm. was told that if the baby cries, smother the baby, mm-hmm. because then they all otherwise they'd all be killed. Yeah. I mean, so she told me she lived through it. And my grandfather, who saw this thing, a very orthodox man, mm-hmm. for a short time he was not orthodox. He mm-hmm. couldn't believe in a guy that would allow this to happen. Mm-hmm. But then he became orthodox again. When he died, he was orthodox. But uh, so, no, she comes from that, literally, specifically, yeah. Uh, a yeah. pogrom. Yeah. You know, she saw it. And she came here when I think she was 12 years old. So yeah. do you think, do you think that, that environment uh, well, so so the larger environment of anti-Semitism, uh, as well as that internal pressure not to make waves. Yeah. Um, Don't let people know. You either mean. did it did it stunt your uh, your development of that 
critical vocabulary, or yes, did it? Yeah, it had an effect on it. Okay, okay. Right. Okay. Because even when I was uh, teaching at the university. Yeah. Or did it set, maybe it set, maybe it settled you a little bit so that you took a longer measured time to build that vocabulary. Is that a possibility well, as well? One of the things that happened though, with a name like Sagaton, they didn't know it was Jewish. Yeah. And um, the administration at the time, the president was Jewish, uh -huh. the vice president was Jewish, and the, uh, the other vice president was, he was an Irishman, but he was married to a Jew. Mm -hmm. So the, the um, these Gentile colleagues of mine would refer to the Jewish mafia. And they didn't know <laughs> it was Jewish, and I heard it. So I knew what was going on. I didn't imagine, I was not paranoid. I was, I, I tried to be defensive. That seems, that seems, uh, for mafia seems the, uh, the catch-all word for every, every bigot uh, and demagogue mm -hmm. or supporter of demagogues right. rendering every dissenting minority as a mafia. Any dissenting minority that wishes to, to assert its voice in American yeah, society and, as and a mafia. all the major cities in Europe had their gangs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There were um, people who ran things behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of them were gangsters. Or equating them as Marxists. Yeah. Now, anyway, that's a, part of the background, Yeah. the atmosphere in which I did that book. Uh, and then, brother, you seem to explode. Uh -huh. From 1967 to 1979, right. 13 years. Mm-hmm. Of, of a virtual creative uh, epiphany. Right. And before that, I had... Um, more than 100 paintings. More than 125. There are a lot of artists who can't do that in a lifetime. You did it in 13 years. Well, I was on a roll. <laughs> because I went through a period before that, before 67, uh -huh. uh, when I couldn't work at all. I was blocked. Yeah, yeah. I, I kept trying to work, but it was, no. But then all of a sudden, whew, I exploded. Yeah. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Do you remember, remember who your favorite artists were? Huh? Who your favorite singers were? I can't. Throughout, your favorite singers throughout that period. Do you remember? My favorite what? Singers. Music? Music, musicians. I mean, I knew Bing Crosby and... Okay. And I, later, I knew Frank Sinatra and all, all right. those people. All right. I'm guessing... You prefer silence when you work. Well, I started out. I was up in the attic. <laughs> I mean, I've been in this house fifty. Did you start years. out in the attic, or were you re regulated to the attic? Well, I'm, that's where you got the studio. <laughs> yeah, fifty out of I think fifty out of fifty-four years. Okay, I worked in the attic. Yeah, and yeah. I was out of my own space. Nice. Now I'm working down here, uh -huh. and it's traffic through here all the time, <laughs> and it's different. Uh -huh. And I think it interferes with my but, work. But you yeah. used to listen to classical music. You uh -huh. were listening to like WFMT while you worked. Yeah. I had a radio, mm -hmm. FM radio. Mm -hmm. I had CDs. a tape recorder used to play stuff. I had uh, all kinds of stuff that I used to uh, use up there and don't any of that anymore. <laughs> I just yeah. hope I can, when I'm here, that I can focus on the paper. You know, just, just be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't even get a tube of paint. Without asking somebody to find it for me, mm. you know, I mean that that does limit limit your work. 
you've you've painted now for seven decades. More than that. Yeah. Yeah. So more than that. Since he was a teenager. Okay. So okay. So nine out of yeah. this is ten decades. He's painting and painting for nine of them. Okay. Exhibiting okay. for most of them. How many years ago did I do the painting? That's what. Uh, that's you're, almost you're, you're 14, I think. Yeah, 14. So that was like 41. The one on the closet door. Okay. Right there. okay. How many years ago was that? That would have been. Wow. What, 82 years? Uh huh. The, the sort of cityscape industrial scene? That's a long time. Yeah, yeah. And it was funny, I just noticed it uh, this afternoon, I mean, this morning. Uh, it's a, a snow scene. Mm hmm. And I'm doing a snow scene now. Those are the only two snow scenes I've ever done. Eighty-one years apart, I'm doing another snow scene. Wow! Wow! Isn't that that's funny? With your eyesight, not where it once was, you still have that that acumen for for color. Well, so I know what the colors are. Yeah, yeah. but that's here, not yeah, here. Yeah. Is that are do those colors diminish in your mind over time when you can't see them, no. or are they just as vibrant? The color is still in my mind. Nice. That's how I work. Uh -huh. I know how that that's a chrome green, so I know, and I add a little liquid. You know, a little, yeah. uh, turpentine or whatever. Yeah. Not turpentine, but acetone or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And. Uh, and so I know what I'm doing if I can't see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And but my technique has changed, mm -hmm. but not because of an artistic explosion, mm -hmm. but because I, I can't see it. You know, it's, it's arbitrary. I have no choice but to uh, do it differently. Yeah, yeah. You've always been incredibly prolific. Um, are you finding that those ideas don't come to you as quickly anymore, or are they coming to you faster, or are you are you struggling to keep up with with all of the work that that you want to accomplish? Well, I used to look for important ideas. Yeah, I don't anymore. Any idea that I can use, I'm going to grab onto. Okay. Because I want to. I don't want to spend a lot of time preparing for a painting. I want to yeah. do the painting. Yeah. And so I do what I can, uh -huh. but um, maybe maybe your voice and vocabulary is clearer, so you don't I, have to. I, you have to. I search. limit myself. Yeah. I limit. I yeah. I say I'm not going to look anymore. Let me start working. Yeah. And so I'll um, almost any idea I get, I'll grab onto. Mm. And that's recent. I used to really work out why I was doing it. I don't care what I, what it is. It could be a, a photograph I saw somewhere. Or some memory or something. Mm -hmm. And if I if it's enough to start, I used to you know do careful preliminary drawings. I don't mm -hmm. care it's out mm -hmm. working right away. So last time I was here uh, was with Carrie Kendall, and when when we were doing the radio show, you were still working eight hours a day. Yeah. Is is that is that your target, still? Uh, no, I mean. I can't work that much. Yeah, yeah. I can work maybe two, three hours a day at the most. Is it your energy, your eyes? I've run out of gas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Ha I have to um, I have to quit. Yeah. And uh, well, I used to work all day. Yeah. 
I, uh, I, in the summer, I used to just wear shorts and nothing else up in the attic mm -hmm. and with my back to the air conditioner. Yeah. And I could work for 12 hours. And I didn't have to urinate as often as either. <laughs> so, um, no, I, I tried to go with the flow, I know, whatever. Yeah. I, I say within my limits, I have no choice. <laughs> and I, I'm, but I, I'm not going to quit until I have to. Good man, good man. Um, I, I asked you earlier about your uh, your plans for your hundredth birthday. We'll we'll come we'll come back to that. We'll hold we'll hold that for uh, for our next conversation. Okay, um, it's fine with me. The the doctor's giving you a clean bill bill of health. Huh? Is the doctor giving you a, a clean bill of health? All things considered. He's healthy. He's healthy. Yeah. I'm I'm satisfied. Good man. And for a while I thought he was out of date because he's an old man. Yeah. So I went some places downtown. Uh huh. Bullshit. I mean, he's as good as any of them. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do surgery. On yeah. Him. Yeah. But uh, in terms of diagnosis, he's as good as anybody. He's better. Doctor, he's talking about. Yeah. You, you did good, didn't you? Yeah. You uh you you talked about how people tend to cond condescend. Oh, to. To people when when they're your age, you're, you're clear as a bell, man. And pulling concepts out of the air and arguing with me to an astounding uh, an astounding level. I just I wanted to make that point. Well, I, there's almost nobody I talk to about her. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm writing about it, but yeah. I don't discuss yeah. it. So nobody challenges what yeah. I say. Yeah. And I like to hear people saying, okay, no, what about this, what about that? Yeah. And so this is pleasurable for me. Yeah. Very special. Me too, me too. Um, what What do you want to say in your memoir about art that you feel people aren't, aren't talking about or aren't saying or haven't said? Image making is a way of making sense out of what stuff you can't talk about yeah and that's what i do yeah it's a way of looking at things a way of seeing things a way of feeling about things and there's no way you can put it in words mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what i do i make images nice. i'm not i hit i have to say i'm making art because i exhibit it in galleries and shows yeah there's no way i can avoid that yeah but i don't think of myself as expressing myself. Yeah. I, I don't think an artist expresses themselves. I think an artist makes paintings. Mm -hmm. It's like a baker makes cakes. But but I, I think I think your use of the word vocabulary is absolutely key in in revealing your true motivation behind your your artwork. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah. Yeah. I think I make images. The difference between me and the baker is that if he's a bad baker, they're not going to call him an artist. But yeah. a bad artist is still an artist. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's that. That's true. That's true. But I suppose I suppose I I would argue a little bit in this way is is by well I I, I let me ask you how how you meant that. That a bad artist is is still an artist. Right. Is is it's a profession. Okay. Okay. It's a skill. Okay. All right. It's a, what he does. 
Yeah. I'm an artist because I make paintings. Yeah. That's yeah. my job. Yeah. And the, what's nice is that the difference is I don't have to sell them. You know, I, I taught so I made enough money to live. Mm -hmm. And so I can paint whatever I want. Mm -hmm. But that's who I am. That's what I am. That's what I've done all my life. I, I, I just had a conversation with, uh, uh, with Leo Sayer, the singer. Uh, from my Playtime podcast, and this is he had like a hit forty years ago. What, what was his? Um, you make me feel like dancing. Okay, yeah. uh, and he had a had a whole whole string of hits, um, and he's he's done some great work since that that just hasn't uh, hasn't gotten the attention that that I think it deserves. But anyways, he's writing what he wants to. He just turned seventy four. He's writing what he wants to, which which belies a, a degree of, of freedom and of respect that he's garnered that he can still do that when a lot of artists might succumb to market pressure or audience pressure. Um, or style pressure. Or style pressure, precisely. And his, his style has, has changed and evolved but um, still that, that core signature of, of Leo Sayer. But I, I see very much that same, same level of freedom in, in your work and in your words, really. Thank you. Um, Leo Saganet. Brilliant, man. Brilliant. A sincere thanks to my guest, Leo Sagadin. Leo's latest show, Leopold Sagadin, The Holocaust Series, Paintings and Drawings in 1967-79 to 79, accompanies a book by the same title. The Holocaust series opens Friday, April 14, 2023 at 4 p.m. at the Noise Cultural Arts Center. That's 927 Noise, N-O-Y-E-S, Street, Suite 100 in Evanston. The telephone number there is 847-328-2100 and runs through Tuesday, May 30th. His website is Leopold Segedin, S-E-G-E-D-I-N dot com. For more info on the Noise Arts Center, visit cityofevanston.org. The music in this piece, Me and My Shadow, is courtesy of YouTube and Memory Lane Music and Audrey Publishing and Blue Skies from 1927 is also courtesy of YouTube, All Rights Reserved. As always, those links will be posted in the notes below. Thanks to all of you for listening. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button for notifications about future guests and programs. Until next time, I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Shades of night are falling and I'm lonely Standing on the corner, oh, so blue Sweethearts having fun Pass me one by one Guess I'll wind up Like I always do With only Me And my shadow Strolling down the avenue Me and my shadow not a soul to tell our troubles to. And when it's twelve o'clock, 
We climb the stair, we never knock, or nobody there, just me and my shadow.